Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello and welcome to Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network and I am Ben Schiller, Features Editor here at Coindesk. And joining me today is Danny Nelson. He is a Senior Business Editor here. And Cam Thompson, she is a Web3 reporter. And Danny, what is this show about, by the way? You know, I asked myself that every morning. I woke up this one and I thought, oh, well, what we do here is we go behind the scenes at Coindesk. We talk about what's driving the stories we're telling, the characters, the different narratives, all that good stuff. And we also talk about what's coming at Consensus the Festival, our big to-do in Austin, Texas every year. We're going to have a whole lot of really awesome guests who are talking about as we say here at Coindesk, the future of finance, or the future of France even. So this is a show where we get to explore all those big ideas. Sounds great. Mentioned in the future of uh, France, as well as finance and the internet itself. Cam, how are you doing today? Doing well, doing well. All right, good. Thanks for joining us, guys. So today we have a, a pretty stuff lineup. We're going to start with some news. We're going to get into a segment with uh, Shayon Ligon, who is a reporter who recently visited uh, the Bahamas to report on the SBF hearing there, the extradition hearing. Then we're going to have a fun segment at the end with Cam, and let's get right to it. Okay, let's get to uh, our new segment here. It's called Inside the Desk, and Danny's going to start us off. The hottest thing in crypto right now are Trump NFTs. That's right. Donald Trump, the former president and current insurrectionist in the United States of America, has issued his own 45,000 NFTs that commemorate his, I don't really know, Trumpiness. Anyway, this collection, $99, right to Trump, it sold out, and it went bananas on OpenSea in the aftermarket. But what really has stuck out to me is the fact that the tech for delivering these NFTs to people really went wrong. Cam, what have you seen with this market? Well, crypto Twitter had a field day over the weekend. After the collection sold out early Friday, people have been going crazy, pointing out the fact that some of these tokens have Adobe watermarks on them. There are some speculation about these 1,000 NFTs that weren't a part of the initial drop. 44,000 were released and 45,000 made up the collection. So 
people are looking into, you know, what exactly those 1,000 NFTs are and what they're doing. People have pointed it to one wallet address. And a lot of people are just talking about how, you know, not only is it just such a meme of a concept, but there are a lot of strange nuances. And the tech is, in my opinion, very poor. Well, to get into the specifics of the tech, the big issue that I saw as a collector of this NFT was when I put in my credit card, I got an email with a link to my NFT. Uh, It was just a link to a wallet that I didn't control. And in order for me to take possession of this NFT, I had to go to some website I'd never heard of before, download a little TXT file with the private key in it, and then log into this wallet that I'd never seen before. That is not a chain of events that is, will be easy for anyone who's new to NFTs to understand. And I think that's part of the reason why we've seen such great price pumping on this NFT collection, despite there being so many issued. Well, I mean, a big part of that, too, is the fact that in this collection, most of the buyers are completely new to NFTs. So if you're having a difficult onboarding process, you're not going to make it easier for people to be able to pick up on these greater concepts of, okay, what are non-fungible tokens? What are wallets? How do I, you know, how do I own these assets? And I think that it's interesting because people aren't pointing out a lot of these nuances and a lot of these strange things that otherwise people who'd be familiar with NFTs might actually understand. So it's very sus. Ben, have you seen these NFTs? Do you have a favorite? Like, do you like the Trump hat one or the Trump astronaut or Trump to the moon? I particularly like the one where he looks like Superman, uh, and it reminds me very much of Cointelegraph, which is a competitor to Coindesk and their sort of iconic artwork on there. But I just want to make a serious, uh, well, not so serious, but a more sort of fundamental point about this. I mean, uh, putting aside our feelings about Donald Trump, and we all have many feelings, this is an example of how NFTs have kind of become part of the political process. This is now another tool in the armory of campaigns such as Trump's. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot of this from political candidates in the next cycle using this technology to raise money and to build engagement. That's just how technology is taken up by uh, the political process eventually. Ben, I hate to break it to you, but this is just a good old grift. He's not even doing this for his campaign. This money is going right to Donald Trump. It's not going to his campaign. That's what makes it so funny. He went on True Social, his social media platform which you can't link to on Twitter, which is everyone else's social media platform, he had had his major announcement. And the major announcement is that Donald Trump, as Donald Trump, is going to be selling these NFTs. So I think you're probably right in that the political process is going to embrace NFTs uh, to some degree. But this one, this is just Donald Trump raising money for Donald Trump. Well, we knew knew that with Donald Trump. I mean, he's been selling uh, dodgy crap for for many years, whether it's stakes or uh, so-called university courses and many, many other things. It's just another example of that. And NFTs, unfortunately, uh, are ripe for grifting. So uh, it's perfect for Donald Trump. But I think there is a serious point about this technology being taken up by the mainstream political process. So uh, that's something interesting in itself. And full disclosure, as I said, I I have actually purchased one of these NFTs and I have sold it. Um, I will be donating the proceeds to a charity in the future, but I did sell my NFT that I bought for $99 for $650. So um, thank you, Donald Trump, for helping me raise money for a better cause than yourself. Ben, over to you for the next section. Congratulations, Danny. That sounds like a good use of time. Uh, Yeah, I I want to talk about... uh... (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) It's really a terrible use of my time. It's a weird flex, but it's still flex. 
it is a you know I had to flex like he, he, and also I have to say he's he's looking really trim it Donald that is the Donald is looking really trim in those NFTs so he's been flexing I may as well flex tell us about Binance Ben all right great so uh, Binance in case nobody's aware is uh, you know the largest company in crypto a bellwether institution for our industry and it's noticeable I think in recent days, how people are beginning to lose faith in its management and particularly its long-term CEO, CZ. He was recently, of course, involved very much in the FTX downfall, tweeting about that to momentous effect. And he also did an interview recently on Squawk Box on um, CNBC, where he came off fairly disastrously, I would say, um, you know, in, in his sort of non-answering of pointed questions from Andrew Ross Sorkin. Plus, you know, there's continuing questions around CZ's use of what's known as proof of reserves, which is basically to attest that you have collateral against the money that's supposedly on your exchange. There's continuing question marks about that. So Ben, what about this stuff with the audits? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the Mazars, which is a fairly significant auditing company, recently uh, dismissed itself from running Binance's audit. So you have to wonder why they would do that, you know, why they would turn down a major company and uh, presumably lots of money that's coming attached to that audit, why they would do that if they didn't see significant fundamental problems in Binance. So I think this all points to a number of red flags. Uh, and I think six months ago, we might have dismissed all of this or ignored it. But I think in the wake of FTX, we have to see these as red flags and, and really be a little bit worried. So what do you guys think about that? I think it's interesting that this firm turned down their role as an auditor of Binance. I mean, it really does make you question, like you were saying, Ben. So for me, Mazar's quitting Binance tells you a little bit more about the auditing industry than it does specifically about Binance. I do think that there's something shady going on at Binance that we do need to all look more into. But I believe that the main driver for this firm saying, we don't want to do business with Binance or for that matter, any crypto company, is that they just don't want to take on the reputational risk of being associated with a dumpster fire when it catches fire. We saw with Armanino, whose stickers I still have that I collected at the Bitcoin Miami conference, they did FTX's books. Now they have major egg on their faces because FTX burned down and they were the auditing firm associated. So for Mazars and also for BDO, they just don't want to have anything to do with this industry because they don't want to have the risk of being the name associated with the burn. Well, I'm not sure that's really a distinction though, Danny. I mean, you're saying that not only do they not want to have anything to do with Binance, they don't want to have anything to do with crypto in general. I mean, that's mm. hardly a, a ringing endorsement of, of anything. And to go back to the main point here, I mean, Binance can't find an auditor amongst a, a mainstream firm because they see too much risk. I mean, that's, that's the point. I mean, whether there's greater risk in the industry is a secondary one. Well, for these companies, it's become the primary one. Binance is just the biggest customer who's feeling it in the worst way. So again, like I do think that the specificity of Binance is secondary here to the fact that this industry as a whole is not looking so good for auditors. Well, I'm curious, why wouldn't these auditors want to stick their stamp of approval if there was a stamp of approval to be given? I mean, I understand, you know, that they would be associated with these exchanges. And like you were saying, you know, when it catches fire, they're going to be named in whatever type of legal proceedings. But, you know, for the meantime, if they're operating in a, at a legitimate capacity, then why is this bad? 
Yeah, I mean, I think auditing is a fundamental part of being a reputable business. I mean, it's like having insurance or having investors. When you can't get an auditor, that really ought to be a sign to everybody that this is not a company we should be dealing with. And I don't see how, you know, CZ and Binance can continue as a legitimate, respected, trusted company if they can't get an auditor to manage its books. I mean, it's just fundamentally, you know, incongruous. What I'm saying is Binance's problem is the entire industry's problem. Because FTX was the most reportedly reputable business out there, and we saw how that went. So now the whole audit industry, the big names, are saying, hold up, hold up. I don't want to be associated because it's not so much the legal risk, it's just the reputational damage that they take on. You don't want to be Arthur Anderson, who did Enron's books. And then you saw, we all know now what happened to Enron. Arthur Anderson had to rename itself. It actually became a censure because the blemish of being associated with Enron was too deep. Well, exactly. But in that case, there were still other energy trading companies like Enron that were being audited by uh, mainstream big four firms. Mm -hmm. So I think that's slightly different. And I also think, you know, CZ kind of responded in that interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin by saying, well, uh, we're crypto and it's on the blockchain and everyone can see how transparent we are. Uh, And that's not really a answer to the question of, you know, why they don't have an auditor, you know, and I think uh, there's kind of a lot of hopium and a lot of sort of Pandlossian thinking in the crypto industry uh, that the blockchain can provide this kind of magical transparency and we don't need to abide by the normal corporate governance rules. And I think that's just frankly nonsense. Uh, And I think people need to grow up and and, and really face the music here. And uh, if you can't get an auditor, you have no right to be a billions and billions of dollar company. Full stop. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer marketers, advertisers, brand leaders, creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. Visit coindesk.com consensus. How much desk do you guys have? I have zero. Like Actually, what? like four, 40. I don't I, do desk. <laughs> what do you mean you don't do desk? You work at Coindesk. All the cool kids are doing desk. Ben, do you do desk? I do a little bit of desk. Uh, just a little bit of fitting. desk. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You got to be with the culture. Maybe I should. So what is it? Tell me. What is it? All right. So desk is Coindesk's social token. Essentially what it is, a token that you receive by interacting with Coindesk content. So this podcast, Carpe Consensus, is the only podcast on the Coindesk podcast network that allows you to earn desk for listening. So what some of the things that you can do with desk include purchasing food, purchasing merchandise, all at our Consensus Festival. It's a great idea to make sure you rack up your desk ahead of the festival in April and listening to Carpe Consensus is a great way to do so. So make sure you go to each episode's page on coindesk.com and you can earn desk. Let's all do it. Maybe maybe this time, maybe for Consensus 2023, I will be better at desk. You should. Yeah, it's like the most redneck pronunciation. Of it's a redneck. All right. So today we have a true redneck here joining us on the show, Cheyenne Ligon. She is our, we, we thought she was French, but she's completely not. Cheyenne is our best definitively court reporter. 
And that has sent her to some weird, wild, and wacky countries not named the United States, such as the Bahamas, where she went in recent days to watch the first hearing of Sam Bankman-Fried. So Cheyenne, welcome to the show. We definitely want to get into this. What was it like to be in the Bahamas to see Sam in person in handcuffs? Well, he wasn't in handcuffs, so Ah, (laughs) it was less exciting than that. He was wearing a suit and his shoes were tied, so it was less exciting than it could have been, but it was wild. To, to To back up for a second, everyone, Cheyenne went to the Bahamas for Sam's first court appearance. She went with maybe eight hours notice. Uh, We knew that he was arrested about 8 p.m. on a Sunday. Uh, Within an hour, I believe, Cheyenne had booked herself on the first flight of the day out of the U.S. to the Bahamas and then raced from the airport to the courthouse. So let me start there. Cheyenne, what was going through your mind when you landed that plane on the tarmac? Yeah. So, I mean, I knew that there were no Ubers in the country. So, and we didn't at the time know exactly which magistrate court uh, SBF was going to be, or that the hearing was going to be in. So it was just, uh, as soon as I landed, I was calling the courts, trying to make sure that we had the address correct. Um, I got like a cab at the airport to my hotel, dropped my stuff off, and then like ran the 10 minutes from my hotel to the courthouse. And it's funny because Bahamian people are really nice and they say hello to everybody, which is not natural for me as somebody that's been living in New York for a long time. <laughs> and I kept thinking that there was like something wrong. So I'm like out of breath, like running in the heat, like still wearing my jacket and tights because I had just gotten off the plane from New York. And uh, this delivery driver stopped me and he was like, hey, hey, I have a question for you. I was like, yeah. So I stopped. And he was like, what color would you say this front door is? <laughs> I was like, dude, I'm running down the street. <laughs> like, um, But I did. I stopped and had a conversation with him. And I was like, if this is what makes me miss SBF showing up to the courthouse, I'm going to be mad. But I did not miss it. And then it was pretty wild when I got there. There was a ton of, uh, of other media, tons of photographers waiting outside. And I talked to some people and they said that the police had told them that SBF was going to arrive on a certain side of the courthouse. And then they just totally surprised everybody by bringing him around the back on a on a different side. So everybody missed it. So he just comes in on these like three SUV like SWAT cars and they drop him off around the back. And then, yeah, we went inside and I kind of had to like beg my way into the court because it was very full. And clearly the security there was just sort of overwhelmed by how many people were there. Yeah. And then it got started. So what was it like inside the courtroom? We, we, I remember hearing your descriptions. You were basically right behind Sam. I was. Yeah. So it's sort of interesting. Like usually if this was the U.S., he would be sitting at a table with his lawyers. But in the Bahamas, he sat in the front row. So it's sort of like pew style seating. And he sat in the front row alone. And then people from the embassy, the U.S. embassy, were in the second row. And then it was reporters in the third row and his family and friends behind us. Yeah, it was interesting. I the, the first thing that happened was basically before the proceedings could begin, his lawyers said that he needed to take medication, that he had not taken medication since uh, the night before when he was arrested. And uh, we kind of had to pause and wait for him to, to take medication. They had to bring in a police officer that had a Ziploc bag of his personal belongings from his apartment where he had been arrested the night before. And uh, it was sort of interesting. So 
the judge asked if he needed water to take his medication and he said no but I do need to take my shirt off so she was like obviously you cannot do that here in front of everybody so he was taken with some police officers to like a back room um, and he was gone for about five minutes and then came back and the proceedings began. Why would he need to take his shirt off to take the medication so I have to ask? Yeah, so he takes something called MSAM, and this was something that had been sort of like speculated on before, but it's confirmed now. It's a patch medication that is used to treat uh, depression, um, but it also has some stimulant side effects from what I understand. So Cheyenne, I have a specific question. You know, if you could talk a little bit about the contents of, you know, what unfolds in the courtroom and specifically about Sam's parents, because I know you talked a good amount about that in your story, but you know, I want to hear a little bit more. What were their reactions? What was it like to watch them? Yeah, the hearing was basically on whether or not the Bahamas should honor its extradition treaty with the United States because he was requested to be extradited by the United States. So because he's lived in the Bahamas since 2021, I'm pretty sure, and has set up his company in the Bahamas, his lawyers were trying to argue that that was enough of a tie to keep him from running. And basically, he wants to fight this uh, from the Bahamas. And yeah, so this was an extradition hearing. At the hearing, Sam said that he would not be waiving his rights to fight the extradition to the United States. Uh, And he ultimately wanted to get out on bail. And him and his parents both seemed really hopeful that he would get out on bail. Ultimately, he was denied bail. But that, that was the contents of the hearing was just sort of like deciding, could he get out on bail? Would the judge be able to consider bail? And if she was going to, like how much bail would, would be considered a reasonable amount to keep him in the country? And yeah, it was just, uh, it was really interesting because so his parents are both Stanford law professors. And he was raised in and around like the Stanford campus uh, in Northern California. And obviously, like, comes from a family that's very privileged and very intellectual. And um, his parents have been pretty involved in the company and, you know, in Sam's life, it seems. And it's been reported that FTX bought his parents a home in the Bahamas. So they've seemed to live there for a while at this point. And they were there uh, last Monday or last Tuesday at the hearing. And they were not reacting the way that I would have expected them to. I've covered a lot of court cases and you just don't really see the behavior that I saw from Sam's parents. Um, His dad, who has been reported to be pretty like conflict averse, was covering his ears like with his fingers in his ears and was sort of like hunched over for some of the proceedings. Like he just didn't want to hear what they were saying about his son. But his mom was very defiant. She was like laughing and scoffing throughout a lot of the proceedings, uh, specifically anytime they called Sam a fugitive, which is the terminology in an extradition hearing. Like once he's extradited and is facing charges in the U.S., he would be called a defendant. But right now he's called a fugitive. That's just the legal language. Um, his mom was laughing at that. And, you know, anytime they alluded that, you know, he was a flight risk or whatever, she would kind of like laugh audibly. And it was it was loud enough that like everybody was turning around. And I know I I saw some Twitter comments that were like, oh, it's nervous laughter. And I think it's possible that it was nervous laughter, but it wasn't just like consistent. It was when something negative was said about her son. So I thought that was interesting. Did you see Sam make any actions during the proceedings? Was he speaking or raising his head, lowering his head, covering his ears? He was pretty, he was pretty subdued. I saw him like when his lawyer was explaining the reasons for him to get out on bail, he was nodding his head. 
specifically when his lawyer was talking about him not being a flight risk and how, you know, at one point the judge asked his lawyer what she, what he thought an appropriate amount of cash bail would be. And uh, he initially suggested $250,000. And then later when the judge said like, oh, wow, you know, like just kind of made a comment, he was like, oh, but if you think that's too much, then maybe it's too much. Maybe 50,000 is enough. And Sam's mom like started like speaking and I turned around, she's like smiling really big. Uh, Cause that's a pretty low price to get out if you plan to, uh, to run, not saying he was, but you know, if that was, if that was the goal, that that's a pretty cheap ticket out of the Bahamas. So Sam was like nodding pretty vigorously when his lawyer was speaking on his behalf. Uh, but the only other time he spoke was when he was directly asked questions about medication that he needed to take, uh, you know, no outbursts or anything like that. And then in the end, when his bail was denied, he seemed genuinely like surprised and, and obviously very upset about it like slumped over in his seat and kind of held his face in his hands. Just to widen this out a little bit, did you get any sense from being down there in the Bahamas of the reaction amongst local people or amongst the officials as to, you know, this whole FTX thing? I mean, presumably at one point they were quite proud to have FTX and SBF down there when he was a hero, but does this reflect badly on Bahamas now and is there some kind of reaction to that locally, do you think? Yeah, thanks for asking, because I wanted to report on this and it didn't really fit into my reporting. But, you know, I mean, it's obviously all over the news there. And the Bahamas is a pretty quiet country. You know, I don't think that like massive international financial scandals happen there very often. So obviously everybody there knows what's going on. And, you know, when when I got in my cab and I'm, I'm on my way to the courthouse, my driver asked if I was there for vacation and I was like, no, I'm here for work. I'm, I'm actually going to an indictment. He was like, oh, SBF. I was like, yeah. And he was like, God put you in my cab. And then he starts telling me his like his his theory that the Bahamian government's in on it. And, you know, yeah, he was like telling me people that I needed to talk to, saying that him and all of his friends had been like following the news really closely. And so I thought, okay, you know, maybe he's just really into crypto. Oh, he did tell me too. He was like, you know, I think crypto is the future and this is really embarrassing to the Bahamas. I think that the Bahamas like has a potential to be like a crypto finance hub. And then this is just really embarrassing. I went to the hearing and, you know, obviously like talked to local reporters and photographers and, you know, they were obviously very educated on what was going on. And then that night I went to a pretty upscale like hotel restaurant and my waiter was talking to me for like an hour and said that SBF had frequently come to the restaurant and played mobile phone games the whole time he was eating. So yeah, everybody seems to be aware of him. And then it was actually kind of funny. So I left the country, I was on a 7am flight the next day and they didn't open security until 6.30. So I was like, oh my God, I'm going to miss my flight. And then when I got to the customs line, there was only like one agent working and they ended up having to hold the plane for me. It's a whole other thing. But when I finally got to talk to the customs agent, I'm the last person in line and she starts talking to me about SBF. She's like, oh my God, yeah, like my son told me they got him. And so, I mean, just every person that I talked to and interacted with had an opinion and was very aware of, of the situation. So you've been to Norway for a trial with Craig Wright. You've been to New Hampshire for a trial with Bitcoin maximalists. You've now been to the Bahamas for a trial with an alleged Ponzi fraudster, maniac boy. Can you compare the judges in these three different trials that you've been to? Like, are the legal systems in each country equipped to handle a crypto case? You know, 
I thought it was really interesting in the Bahamas specifically that the judge, first of all, like it's just a much more relaxed system, it seems, but the judge seemed to be the least aware of the situation out of everybody that I talked to, including my cab driver and the customs agent and uh, my waiter at the restaurant. And the judge kept forgetting Sam's last name. She called him Mr. Freeman a couple of times. And then she would just pause sometimes and be like, Mr., Mr., and then Sam would go Bankman Freed. And she'd be like, right, Bankman Freed. Um, and at one point, she forgot the name of FTX. She went FT, FT, and then one of the lawyers was like, FTX? And she's like, yeah, yeah, FTX. So, yeah, I, I've never really seen that in, in a case before, although in her defense, like, she had just signed his the warrant for Sam's arrest the day before. So it could just be that she's not super familiar with the case. And at the end, after she had uh, denied him bail and agreed to keep him in the Bahamas, she said that she was going to have to give the case over to a different judge because she just wasn't super familiar with uh, the subject matter or just like extradition stuff. So, yeah, it was just much more relaxed than I'm used to. The lawyers kept interrupting each other. You don't normally see that. It just seemed much more casual. The other thing that I thought was a little strange was that so we, we broke for lunch for like an hour and a half. And then when we came back, she said that she was going to have to take another break. So after both lawyers finished arguing about, you know, why Sam should not be given bail, why Sam should be given bail, the judge was whisked away in a car for about an hour uh, and didn't tell us at least where she was going or why she had to leave the court. And then when she came back, she made her decision. But I've never seen a judge leave the court for an hour before issuing a decision. She she was running an errand during the proceedings, basically? I guess, yeah. (laughs) I don't know if it was a dentist appointment. I don't know. I don't know. That's that's amazing. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Mad respect. I need to move to the Bahamas. So, Shan, just to give us an update on where we stand with the proceedings now then. So, SPF is going to come back to the United States. Well, is he? I mean, that's like apparently. So, so he was remanded to Fox Hill Prison. Well, it's not called Fox Hill anymore. It's colloquially called Fox Hill. I don't know the new name. But the Bahamas' only prison is pretty rough. And... You know, I've been reading reports that he's been housed in the sick bay where there's like AC and toilets and it's a little safer. But the conditions in like general population are pretty rough at Fox Hill. And uh, there's another hearing actually going on as we speak uh, today on December 19th about, you know, it, it seems like he is now waiving his his fight against extradition to the U.S., uh, that he's ready to come back. But even if that's granted, I, I think it typically still takes a while to actually be extradited to the U.S. It's not like he's going to be back tomorrow. But if that doesn't happen right now, there's another extradition hearing set for like February 8th, I think, to go over that. And then once he's back in the U.S., then it's really irrelevant to the Bahamas and he's going to face charges in the U.S., Well, thank you, Cheyenne, for joining us. If you go back to the Bahamas to follow more of these proceedings, we definitely want to hear about it here on the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, guys, who wants to talk about Yuga Labs? I do. Let's do it. All right. So interesting news coming from the company behind Board Ape Yacht Club and CryptoPunks. They hired a new CEO. Former president and chief operating officer of Activision Blizzard, Daniel Allegra, he is going to be joining the company in the beginning of 2023. And he has a big background in the gaming world. I mean, coming from Activision Blizzard, that's a huge gaming studio behind Call of Duty, World of Warcraft. 
I'm curious, what do we think about this major player in the NFT space creating this this gaming-focused hire? I mean, I've always wanted to play Call of Duty Black Ops with a Bored Ape skin as my in my first-person shooter game. So, like, this is going to be absolutely huge if they go down that road, which I don't think they will. But I guess at the very least, it means that Yuga Labs is trying very seriously to pivot toward a more gaming-focused experience. Why else would you bring on someone from Activision Blizzard? So I guess we're going to see some Bored Ape titles coming down the pipeline. Danny, you said you don't think it will, though, Bored Ape skins. What do you mean? Well, what I was talking specifically about, just because the an old executive from Activision Blizzard is now on board at Bored Ape, doesn't mean that Activision Blizzard games will now have Bored Ape integrations. So right, there won't right. be Call of Duty skins. But maybe Board Ape Yacht Club and Yuga will build their own inferior version. Potentially. Ben, what do you think about this company that's created this large ecosystem of NFTs, you know, maybe taking more of a gaming approach? Yeah, well, uh, Yuga Labs is uh, one of the biggest names in our space. I would say they're one of the few companies that have kind of crossed the Rubicon from being a small crypto startup to being a kind of company that's taken seriously in Hollywood and kind of in in the mainstream culture world. And gaming is probably the next logical step for a company like that. You know, they kind of conquered the art space with these NFTs. uh, And now it's time to really create that kind of monetizable flywheel uh, of a game. Uh, But we have to say that, you know, Web3 games up to now have been fairly underwhelming. But if anyone's going to do this, then uh, it's probably Yuga Labs because they definitely have the money. And now it seems like they have the know-how as well. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that we have yet to see an actual Web3 game that's fun to play or that actually works and has enjoyable graphics. I mean, this year, though, there's been a lot of money that's gone into funding different gaming companies. I mean, Yuga had a $450 million funding round led by A16Z earlier this year, and other companies have seen a ton of capital go in. Animoca Brands, Yatsu's company creating the open metaverse, that's another one that's received lots and lots of capital. But have you seen any metaverse games come out of this trend of ridiculously large funding rounds? Well, building a really good game takes a really long time. There was that one called Something 2049. It took, it was actually, when it launched, it was a complete bomb of a game. But it took years to develop. It takes years to properly develop a really good gaming experience. Crypto is not known for really good gaming experiences. So there haven't been any big drops yet. I wouldn't necessarily say that that's a problem, but if any of these these funding rounds are going to come to anything, next year and the year after, these companies got to start delivering. Yeah, I think it's more likely we're going to see, you know, existing games adding crypto elements than natively Web3 games being wildly successful, at least in the near term. I don't know about that. I don't know about that because we've seen a lot of pushback from the, if you'll call it, traditional gaming community against NFTs and crypto to the extent that some game developers have walked back their plans to get into crypto because of that outcry. So I don't know if we're going to see the existing games leading from the front, especially after the big crashes that we've seen this year. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's right, Danny. Uh, and I think what this fundamentally comes down to is people want to have fun, which is what a game is all about. Uh, and if you can't provide the fun, then the crypto and NFT elements are kind of secondary to that. Well, that's an interesting point, too. The concept of the metaverse and creating these different metaverses, 
So much of that is based in games, and it's a collection of different games comprising an experience where crypto and NFTs are being used. And maybe part of these games that are being developed are part of this larger effort to create more metaverses. I mean, perhaps it's all just under this metaverse umbrella. In the meantime, we have a lot of metaverses right now, and a lot of metaverses are actually having holiday activations. So go check that out. Speaking of, happy holidays. We are actually going to be taking next week off. So please enjoy the holiday season. Spend some time with your family. You know, don't try to be too obsessed with what's happening in crypto, but also, you know, come back ready to learn in 2023. Who knows what's going to happen in the meantime, but make sure you tune in the first week of January. That was Carpe Consensus. I am joined by Ben and Danny, and we will catch you in early 2023. So happy holidays. Happy New Year. Catch you all next year. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production, executive produced by Jared Schwartz and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.